Hello and welcome to Kez Publica, the uh, classics podcast from the classics department here at Kez. This is the first episode, the pilot episode. We've uh, we've tried to set up our microphones correctly and hopefully we have done so. Mr Feeney is here with me, Mr Burns, and uh, we're going to try and get through a little bit of chat on the Iliad, which is one of the poems that we study as part of World of the Hero at Classical Civilization A-Level, which is the best A-Level, isn't it, Mr Feeney? I think it's quite difficult to disagree with that assessment, definitely. It's certainly yeah. the one that people enjoy the most, I think, um, <clears throat> teaching and, and studying. Yeah, students students come to it brand new a lot of the time and, um, yeah, just absolutely love it. It's fantastic. And Homer is fantastic. And really looking forward to this. Yeah, okay, brilliant. Um, so, Mr Feeney, you've got some questions for me. Um, you're going you're gonna to try and pin me down on various things about the Iliad. I will attempt to, yes. Um, would you like the first question? Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay, so the first question I was thinking of was, um, there are many obviously different characters in the poem, both mortals and immortals. In your opinion, who do you think is at the centre of the epic? Okay, I mean, yeah, that's a great question, because it's a poem with so many internal parallels, mirrored incidents, and the structure is so brilliantly wrought out that it's it's actually quite difficult to pin down what the centre of the poem is, despite it being an absolutely fantastic unity in its in its construction. Obviously, at the heart of the poem is Achilles. Yeah. He is the he is the protagonist. The poem starts <clears throat> with the word wrath, menace in, in Greek, mm-hmm. and it is of course the wrath of Achilles that we're talking <clears throat> about. Yeah. Now his anger um, is what drives forth the poem. And of course, his anger changes from an anger at Agamemnon to anger at Hector um, for various complex reasons. One of them being the uh, the abduction of his prize, Briseis. That's mm-hmm. uh, why he's angry at Agamemnon. Um, he doesn't love her, for all of those of you who are romantics out there who want to think <laughs> that he does love her. I'm, I'm very sorry to say that he doesn't mm-hmm. uh, love her. But he, he, he's annoyed in the same way that you and I would be annoyed if somebody stole our you know, coffee or our computer or our car or something like that. She's a possession to him, I'm I'm very sorry to say. Mm. Um, But then what happens is, for various uh, reasons, his best friend, Patroclus, uh, goes out and is killed on the battlefield by Hector, who Mm -hmm. is the prince of Troy, um, the the best Trojan fighter. At uh, in the battle, and his anger then turns to 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 wrath at, at Hector, um, and we get the fantastic second half of the poem uh, mm. where that that is played out. Yeah. Now, of course, the controversy is 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 it really Achilles at the centre of the Iliad, or is it Hector? Because of course, Hector is the complete man, isn't he, Mister Feeney? Well, how do you mean? What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that he is. Um, He's mortal. He's fully mortal. He doesn't have a divine parent like Achilles. Mm-hmm. Moreover, he, he's married to Andromache, and he has a son, Astyanax. Mm-hmm. And it is all on him, the defence of Troy. It is all on him. He bears the burden of the defence of his city. Mm-hmm. It's not his fault the Greeks are there. It's his stupid brother Paris's fault. Um, <laughs> and you know, Sex crazy seducer Paris, yes. Yes, exactly, with mm-hmm. the floppy hair. Paris with the floppy hair yeah, and the yeah. bedroom eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, so... Hector's got to defend the city. It's all on him. Every Everyone's looking at him to defend the city. And you know what? He's not actually that good a warrior. That's an interesting point you're making. Um, 
I would I would disagree. I think Hector is um, is a very very good warrior. He is the only match for Achilles on the Trojan side in the war. Um, and not only are the other Trojans aware of that, but he himself, I think, is very full aware of that. Um, but why, is it, why do you think he is not a particularly great warrior? Well, what I think is going on is that you're right, that he is the best Trojan warrior. Mm. That is not the same as being a match for Achilles. He is forced to be a match for Achilles by circumstance. Mm -hmm. And the circumstance being that, of course, he's the only one there is. Mm. He's the only one who could plausibly be ranked as what I would call 18, and my mm -hmm. classical civilization class would be familiar with this terminology. It's very, mm -hmm. very uh, scholarly terminology. Mm -hmm. You know, on the A-team on the Greek side, you've got Achilles, you've got Odysseus, you've got Diomedes, you've got Ajax. Mm -hmm. The only Trojan that could even vaguely be plausibly ranked at the same level is, mm. is Hector. But really, he'd be, a, he'd be on the bench. He'd be a sub for the Greek A-team. Um, what do you think about Sarpedon on the Trojan side? Would he count yes, as the A-team? He's or? not up to it. He's B-team. He's B-team. He's a journeyman. You know, he's, <laughs> he's, he's all right. Yeah. He's not bad. He'd yeah. probably beat up me. Yeah, I mean, we have to probably be aware that none of us would stand a match with any of <laughs> with any of the, I, I uh, the least talented warriors on either side. I reckon I could take Paris. Um, it's the reason why I asked this question initially to begin yeah. with was, as you were saying, many people consider Achilles to be the center of the poem, but other people actually consider it to be Hector. And I think the point that mm. you make about him being the more complete man than Achilles is an interesting one. I'm curious, though, about the fact that, as you brought up, Achilles is uh, a demigod, semi-divine, because mm. of his mother Thetis. And that semi-divinity that he has allows him to be more fully aware of the fate that is coming to him and it allows him in some ways to be a much greater warrior than anyone else could. Is that... Oh, I, I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah. I think it also means that he is less of a man. Mm. Because a man has to live his life in uncertainty. A yes. man does mm -hmm. not understand what fate has in store for him. Exactly, he must yeah. act in the moment according to his virtue. And that yeah. is what Hector does. Mm -hmm. It is not what Achilles does. Achilles, particularly when he returns to the fighting in Book 21, he isn't really, he doesn't really resemble a mortal man anymore. He resembles this, um, this frightening godlike killing machine really yeah well and when, when he comes across the plane to to, mm -hmm. to kill hector at the sky and gate he's yeah. like a, he's like the approach of a star yeah that amazing simile yeah and of course that is that is a star that's reflecting off his shield and his shield depicts the entirety of human life mm -hmm. so it's like he is he the the glare, the, the dreadful glare that, that, that blinds Hector as he comes towards him is a reflection of all of human life mm -hmm. somehow being carried by this more than human semi-divine warrior that represents his death. Mm -hmm. And yet Hector stands, mm -hmm. at least for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, before he loses his bottle, yeah. yeah. Um, it is the most one of the, the Iliad, as you know, is full of heartbreaking moments and heartbreaking scenes. But mm. that moment at the beginning of Book Twenty Two, when Hector is standing there, despite the pleas and entreaties of his parents on the wall above him, to stand there and he debates with himself, "What the hell am I going to do?" Because yeah. he realizes that he's stuck and he has nowhere to go. It's um very very moving and very emotional that moment yeah. and he does have the option of retreating inside the gate 
but he's there and he's in the context of humanity his yeah. parents are literally above him mm-hmm. he is in the middle yeah. he is in the moral dilemma he has the option to retreat but he says i would feel shame yeah that i dose that is so prevalent in this in this world yeah and he says the exact same thing in book 6 to his wife he's his mm. wife begs him come back and don't do this and he says i can't because i would feel shame before the people of troy if i did Mm. that code of honor that these men follow and live their lives by is so rigid and so so prescriptive that it doesn't give them much option about what they are going to do it doesn't give the best of them much option no i would i would slightly Mm. modify that it doesn't give people like hector much Mm -hmm. option and i you know he is he is but he's flawed as well this is what's so brilliant about hector he's flawed he's Mm -hmm. not the perfect man he makes mistakes Mm -hmm. you know he he makes tactical errors he does run away from achilles at first but he then he does eventually stand his ground but because he is tricked Mm. although he does uh, the moment when he realizes that he's been tricked and he goes for achilles anyway yeah in the full knowledge of what's about to happen to him is is admirable yeah yeah it's complicated isn't it yeah i do think that i mean and in its complication it, it 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 reflects life yeah and and that is why i would make the case that for a modern reader mm-hmm. yeah. of the poem hector is the center he is that he is mm. the he is the heart he's the emotional heart i'd also argue that he is the the heart of the meaning of the poem in some ways mm. um but of course for the I, I fully accept that for the for the greek reader it was all about achilles Yes, and you only have to think of someone like Alexander the Great who carried the Iliad with him everywhere and thought that he himself was descended from Achilles and he tried to emulate Achilles during his short life. Mm. Um, You only have to think of someone like him to understand how the ancient Greeks really thought about him and the importance that he has. I want to... I I do have another question for you, Mr. Burns, but I do want to go back to what um, Achilles' shield that you mentioned earlier because it... It is such a marvellous object, and the way Homer describes it mm. at the end of book 18 is phenomenal. And I'm really interested in what you said about that shield being a representation of human life. Mm. You know, the, the people working in the fields, the people dancing, the, yeah. the conflict and the war and so on. I'm, I wonder, what do you think about how that shield relates to Achilles himself? I almost see it as it's the life that he's forsaken. Achilles, mm. at this point in the poem, knows that he is going to stay at Troy and die and never return home and experience what is on this shield. So he has a reminder of the life he's never going to have mm. as he goes into battle. But but what do you think about the importance of that shield? Uh, it's it's very complicated, and, and, yeah. and there are uh, and, and articulating the link between Achilles and the shield is a bit like trying to articulate the link between a given Homeric simile and mm. what it's trying to describe. Yeah. And I think that yeah. that is actually an important point because, in a way, the the shield is the culmination of all the similes in Homer. In in a mm. sense, it is a is a physical embodiment of the similes within the poem, mm. and uh, that makes it complicated because the similes do not. Do not relate in a straightforward way to the action. Mm-hmm. I would personally go for a very airy fairy 
uh, highfalutin sort of interpretation of the shield. And I would mm. say something like the idea that he is carrying it, he is not in it, he is behind it. Mm-hmm. He is carrying it in front of him. He is not within it. Mm. That is saying something about Achilles. It's like he is the, the terrible force, the life force mm. that sits behind human life and can can and drives it forward and drives forward human life, but also can bring it to an end. It, it's mm. the it's the it, it, it's the it's the ungovernable power of life that he has in such abundance. Mm-hmm. And that is why he carries that shield, and yet he is separate from it. Mm-hmm. Um, he, they, yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's yeah. something like that. That's not a very articulate um, explanation, and you know I should probably be doing better than that. Um, but I, I, th- I think it is mysterious. There's, there's a mystery in there as well. I think Homer. Well, it's not just with the shield, but in general, Homer makes everything ambiguous to an extent mm. because, as you say. I personally believe Iliad and the Odyssey, Homer's works, are the greatest reflection of human life Mm. in print that exists. Everything about human life, every facet of the human existence can be found somewhere in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Mm. And everything is ambiguous because life itself is, as you were saying, is uncertain and unclear and complicated and confusing. Yeah, Um, That could lead on to the second question I have for you, actually, if, Go for if, it. if you are ready. I'm ready. Um, so, obviously, we've been talking about who is at the centre of the epic, but I, I'm, I'm wondering about what the centre of the epic is. Many people consider it to be war. It is a poem about war. And you may disagree with that or agree, I'm not entirely sure, but um, war is so prevalent in this poem. Um, what do you think... Homer's comment on war is if he has one to make at all I don't think that he would be making a comment on war in the way that a Christian or post-Christian society would be making a comment on war and actually I think it's important to bring in Christianity because in many ways my answer to who is at the centre of the Iliad is a Christian answer Yeah, Uh, Mm -hmm. Hector is the Christian hero the dutiful man and so on Yeah, Um, Mm -hmm. so you know I am being someone who has been produced by a Christian culture there Um, uh, what do I think I mean you know what is at the centre of it from the perspective of a modern reader, mm. you could argue that love is at the perspective of, is is at the centre of sure. it. Sure, yeah. it's Achilles' love for Patroclus, and I mm-hmm. don't necessarily mean. In fact, I don't mean romantic love there. I I, I don't subscribe to that. View. No, although no, I think it's I. No. I think it's a reasonable ish view. I'm mm-hmm. I'm not condemning it, um, but I, I think that it is a. I don't think it's romantic love. I think mm. it is it is a uh, a love of male friendship. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And you can argue that that is at the centre in the same way that it's Hector's love for his his family and his city that is driving him. Mm-hmm. Um, and you clearly see the difference between the characters who are driven by love, Achilles and Hector, mm-hmm. and the characters who are not, mm-hmm. Paris, Agamemnon. <laughs> um, and, you know, they are yeah. less admirable mm-hmm. characters. And, and, you know, that, that division is stark. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the real heart of the poem is in the characters that are driven by love. Mm-hmm. Um but of course, we, we have to deal with the fact that most of the poem is about death on the battlefield. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that it's... it's uh, uh, but 
even when Homer is dealing with death on the battlefield, he is also dealing with the human stories that, that lie behind each individual death. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So there is this notion in Homer, you never ever get to escape the consequences for the individual. And I don't really see how those consequences make emotional sense or have emotional power without the notion of love. Love of life, love of parents, mm-hmm. love of youth and manhood mm-hmm. um, that, that, that underlie it. It's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I never get the sense reading the Iliad that Homer is taking delight in describing people's deaths in great anatomical, gory detail. I think he is just doing it in as um, uh, you know in the way that is most appropriate for his poem yes it doesn't flinch yeah. away from it does it it's, no. it's, it's, it, it doesn't flinch but it doesn't it's not gratuitous no but what's the tricky balance I think that everyone he reads the Iliad struggles with is due to the heroic code warriors know that they are going to gain their kleos and their timae by going out on the battlefield and killing as many of the enemy as possible and being celebrated forever for it yeah but on the other hand um the human consequences of that as you were saying the death of people young men who are in their prime and the effects that those deaths are going to have on their family members back home is inescapable and it's so poignant and moving how so often in the Iliad Homer will give us a brief backstory to a character who we've never met yeah just a couple of lines just telling us where he was from who his parents were did he have any siblings and we kind of get to know him a bit and begin to like him and then just like that he's already dead yeah he kills him off yeah yeah, and and this happens time and time again in the poem and it does make you as a reader and as a listener question what the overall effect of war is I think though that it's so discombobulating to us and it's so it's so puzzling because we are Christian or post-Christian readers Mm -hmm. you know I suspect that a contemporary whatever time period we're going for there Mycenaean Mm. or archaic Greek or Mm. you know what have you Mm. would not be so disturbed by the notion that there is this irreconcilable tension Mm. between Kleos, glory, Tina, honor, mm-hmm. death and misery mm-hmm. at the heart of the poem. I think it is a it is a monotheistic phenomenon to want everything to resolve neatly into one moral, one coherent moral yes. explanation. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that <clears throat> I suspect strongly for a contemporary, mm. it, it is perfectly natural that there is this irreconcilable tension. That links actually very nicely with what Achilles says to Priam in book 24 after Priam has burst into his tent and begged him for Hector's corpse. The thing that Achilles says is Zeus has the two jars Mm. with joy and suffering and it's up to him how much of each each mortal gets. Immortal life is bound to be a mix of the complicated, the uncertain, and the good and the bad together. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, that does that does fit in very neatly with what you were just saying. Fantastic. Well, should we, should we pause that there then? And should we, should mm-hmm. we deal with some, uh, some student questions? Let's do it, yeah. Um, so uh, let's see, what have we got here? Um, well, the, the, the first question um, came through from uh, Elise in year 13. Thank you, Elise, um, friend mm-hmm. of the show. Uh, what 
this is obviously we're, we're now going to answer questions about anything to do with classics it can mm-hmm. be wacky it can be niche yeah. um, so we're, we're moving away from the Iliad here because you know mm. the classical world classics is a mm. you know is a, at the very least a, a thousand year time period across mm-hmm. the entire Mediterranean basin so yeah. um, you know there's lots to get into mm-hmm. um, so much what and, and Elise's question is uh, what were the roles of domesticated animals in the ancient world were they ever treated as we treat pets now or did they always need pragmatic functions? And were there any weirder exotic pets out there that we know of? Well, Mr. Feeney, what do you think? That's a terrific question. I suspect the answer to this depends on what your definition of a domestic, uh, domesticated animal is. For example, people living in ancient Pompeii, if they worked in a bakery, they would have mules that would walk around and grind up the grain in order to make the flour, in order to make the bread. Those horses would have been kept in stables at the home, within the home, or you know, at the very least nearby the actual bakery itself. Would those horses count as domesticated animals? I'm not entirely sure. Because they are there to do a purpose, they're there to do a job. Yeah, I wonder if they um, have names. I, I, they must have done. People um, don't change, do they? No, people don't. And um, you know, but, floppy and dopsy. Yeah, you know, it exactly. Must have been, yeah, you know. I mean, even think of Subarani that were teaching to be year sevens at the moment. The dog Keller, you know, yeah. quick. I mean, these are not coincidental names. Also, there's that very famous mosaic from the House of the Tragic Poet in Pompeii, where you walk into the Falces, the little entrance hall, and there is a mosaic on the floor saying "Carway Canem, beware of the dog." So yeah. that has been around for thousands of years I think the role of domesticated animals honestly like cats and dogs to the Greeks and the Romans would have been I suspect quite similar to their role to people now I think they would have been there for comfort I think they would have been there for company I think they would have been there um, just for the pleasure they give their owners yeah, we do um, have some evidence in that in text don't we we've yeah. got uh, we've got uh, Catullus's girlfriend's uh Sparrow. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, yeah. We've got... Um, yeah. What else have we got? We've got the... Um, we've got the... Uh, Xenophon. Is it Xenophon? Talks, he gives a mm. long passage about the proper name for dogs. Proper good names for dogs. Oh, he, yes, he gives, yes, I remember you know, that, yeah. And there's sort of speedy yeah. and barky and woofy yeah. and, you know... Yeah, all of that. I and think if you're naming an animal... Yeah, you know you are you have got a relationship. With yeah, it. and absolutely, and also this goes all the way back to Homer again, not the Iliad, but the Odyssey. Odysseus's dog um, Argos, which again in Greek means quick. Yeah, just like Keller of in course, Latin. Yes, Odysseus's so, dog. Yeah. yeah, so again, it, all the best things go back to Homer. And, yeah. so, you know, and as you were saying, people don't ever change. You know, mm. societies change and cultures change, but people don't. So I think yeah. the the purpose of domesticated animals, I think would have been quite similar in the, in the Iliad the heroes love their horses don't they you can tell that I mean Achilles' horse actually talks to him I know it's one of the, yeah. strange, one of the strangest <laughs> yeah. moments in yeah. all of ancient literature it's crazy yeah. Um, yeah but they are and also the horses in book 17 of the Iliad cry for Patroclus' death they and do so on, you know yeah um, yeah, so it's um, we have the relief similar. from um, we have a relief from Ostia as well the port at Rome of mm. uh, monkeys sitting on a shop counter 
playing with the oranges that oh, were on it, sale. Literally, uh, last Easter break, I was in Ostia, and I remember seeing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. incredible. So yeah. one wonders whether they were sort of pets who, I don't mm-hmm. know, maybe there um, in the shop, sort of, you know, as a, as a sort of, I don't know, a, 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 an attraction or a, a novelty, know, a novelty, sort of, or yeah. you know. So I think that you know the, the uses of animals were very diverse. I mm. would personally hesitate to say that they would have exactly the same obsession with pets as we do in the modern world. Because I think mm. that's quite a Victorian thing. Hmm. I wonder whether it was somewhere in the, in between us as post-Victorians and say the hmm. more medieval brutal attitude to animals. Hmm. I, I think it's probably somewhere in between. It, it probably would have slightly depended on your socioeconomic status. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I think we do have enough evidence to say that they definitely had personal relationships with animals in some circumstances. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. And obviously, I mean, there was a mention of sacrificial animals in Elise's question, but the but the purpose you have. Um, with a domesticated animal as opposed to a bull or a goat that you might sacrifice to a god is obviously incredibly different. Yeah, well, sacrifice, um, of course, yes, that's something that we probably ought to talk about because mm. in that answer, because, of course, animals are one of the key ways that you communicate with the gods through sacrifice. I mean, how do we mm-hmm. make sense of that? Um, it's it's an element of that society that has not really passed down to us and I think no. quite, and I think quite rightly I mean we mm. you know it, it's an aspect of you know similar to slavery it's an aspect of um, the ancient the classical world that I think it is good that we have moved on from I don't know I'd quite like to use a chicken oracle you know about chicken oracles <laughs> you know the Romans will battle yes and being chucked into the sea and so on there was yes, a, there but, was a famous um, um, scholar I think he was in the 1800s that went to live with an African tribe that used chicken oracles the Azande if I believe, if I remember <laughs> rightly. And he said, he reported, he's a classicist, obviously, because only classicists do this sort of thing. Yeah. And he reported back that living your life by chicken oracles is just as good as any other method. <laughs> that, you know, the decisions you make end up being more or less the same quality. I think personally, I would rather travel to Dodona in North Greece and yeah. uh, talk to the tree of Zeus, you know, but um, right. yeah. <laughs> to each their own. Yeah. yeah, the whispering in the leaves. Absolutely. Creepy, isn't it? Falnus does that as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, another question from mm-hmm. uh, Ein in Year 12, okay. a friend of the show. Uh-huh. Um, to to what extent did muses drive artistic inspiration in the ancient world? Oh, wow. wow. A, that is an interesting question. Well, what's a muse, first of all, Mr. Finney? Well, there were nine of them. They mm-hmm. are um, the daughters of memory. Mm-hmm. And they, I am, unfortunately, I remember the names of a few of them. I do not remember the names of all nine off what's the top of my shocking, head. What's disgraceful. I, isn't it terrible? Disgraceful. Yes, yeah, sack myself the now. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but they were the um, they were considered by poets at any rate to be the source of artistic inspiration. So, for example, Homer begins the Iliad's "Men in Aedithia." and so on. Well, that's a big flex there, uh, but, isn't it? He's just done that in Homeric uh, Greek. Um, but yeah. goddess, yeah. So he's a, he's appealing to um, uh, the goddess of um, epic poetry, mm. um, Calliope, um, to give him the inspiration he needs. And again, at the beginning of the Odyssey, he does the same thing. Andromoyenape Musa, Muse, sings to tell me of the man. And Virgil even does it in the Roman times in the Aeneid. Often he starts with um, the words. Musa at the beginning of book one, but then he often comes back and says, "Muse, give me the inspiration to reel off this long list of warriors and so on." Yeah, and he does. He does um, at key moments in the Iliad, like in book sixteen, just before Patroclus begins on the the events that are going to lead to his death. He yes, says yeah, he yeah. reinvokes the muse. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. so you can clearly see it's a significant moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
So they are the source of artistic inspiration. I don't think they would have been um, the primary reason why every single poet or artist would have embarked on their work in the ancient worlds. Mm. There are many, many, many poets from the ancient worlds who make no mention of the muses in their work at all. Um, but to some particular poets, particularly the epic poets, they um, they are a, um, they are important to invoke and to mention. Yeah. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because when we are inspired, I mean, that, <clears throat> that verb, inspire, mm. obviously from the Latin, to breathe into, yeah. it is like something external breathed into us. We don't yeah. always, under, that's what inspiration is. We, we mm. don't understand where this brilliant, wind of inspiration has has come it seems mm -hmm. to work through us yes and of course it's you know in the modern world we would start to think post freud and jung we'd start to think about the unconscious and we'd say well the unconscious has been doing stuff outside mm -hmm. of your conscious awareness and then it, yeah. it feeds up into the conscious part mm -hmm. when it's ready to go but yeah. of course the ancients would have used a different vocabulary for dis for mm. for describing that psychological phenomenon and mm. and the the sense that it is something that you are not consciously aware of something external mm. to you and your ego yeah. that then provides something to you and comes through you mm -hmm. i think is a perfectly reasonable formulation of of artistic process mm -hmm. definitely and it, it gives an insight into how the greeks and the romans to an extent viewed their own worlds everything in the greek worlds they believe came under the uh, protection or auspices of a, of a particular god so for this as you were saying this force that is rising up in them to um force them to create poetry or to create their arts they couldn't really put a name to it so they can uh, personify it almost as they did most other things in the world by a particular deity, a yeah. particular god. Um, I think also in relation to this question, it's important to talk about um, the great Roman poet Catullus, um, who has a muse of his own, but his muse was mortal. Um, the Greek poet Sappho, the so-called tenth muse, mm. um, and he is constantly trying to evoke her work and the whole reason why he calls his um, girlfriend Clodia Lesbia in his poems is to evoke Lesbos, the Greek island where Sappho lived in the to, to the in, immense in, confusion of generations yeah. of students. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it is also the, the etymological root of our word lesbian now, yes. lesbianism. But um, I think to to an ancient they could also describe a mortal person as a muse of theirs, not just the nine canonical muses, the deities. Yeah, I think it's, it's such a tragedy that we don't have more of Sappho's poetry now. I mean, it, it, that is, it is. If I could yeah, rescue one text from the ancient world, I'd, I'd be yeah. hard pressed, but Sappho, mm -hmm. I wish she'd be up there. I Yeah, um, she, is, she is in a league of her own in many ways. Yeah, yeah. she's incredible. Well, on that note, I think that's a good uh, that's a good note to, to end the first uh, episode of this podcast on. Mm -hmm. Publica. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, and say, do send in those questions for, uh, for episode two. Okay, thank you, Mr. Feeney. Thank you very much, Mr. Burns. It's been a pleasure.